Hey, fam. Have you ever heard the phrase that talks about being stuck between a rock and a hard place? I mean, it's a fairly common euphemism that talks about being wedged between two impossibly difficult situations. But today, we're talking with lived experience warrior and IOCDF advocate Erica McCoy. And you know what, fam? She's not stuck. So join us for some family time because you just may find a blade or two of grass and life emerging from difficult spaces. And we are here for it. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The CD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. And for any of the newer fam that is perhaps just tuning in for the first time, welcome. Hey, make yourself at home because we keep it real cash. Whoa, <laughs> round these parts. And uh, if that's wrong, then I don't want to be right. <laughs> but seriously, I'm happy that you could join us because this is a community where we come together, we catch up, we lean in or on one another because sometimes it's just been a day, fam. And we get it. You're not alone. So I usually take a few minutes to catch up, check in, and share about our amazing guests that we have the privilege to be speaking with. So I'll start by saying this week was the first week. First, fam. One. Uno, <laughs> where we've had no E or synchronous remote learning and praise be because oof, did I and uh, really my nervous system really need that. So shout out to the weather for behaving itself enough. I mean, it's funny, actually, because on Monday or Tuesday, I can't even really remember which day it was because they're all at a certain point. They all run together. But it was literally raining slush as we were taking the kids over to school. And the parents were all like collectively holding our breath about, oh, my gosh, is school going to be canceled? We're going to have another remote learning day. But they did let the students slide right on in over the door. And so we got out of there, no tag backs. <laughs> and trust me, I love having my kids around. I am happy when we get to be home together. And that's great. But these synchronous learning days are killer. Killer, especially for parents trying to juggle shifts and office hours. Not saying it's not difficult for stay-at-home moms or dads either. It's just like, ah. And my kids are still fairly young. They have varying support needs. So it's just a whole lot of mess and stress on e-learning days. I miss the snow days, to be honest, or the slush days. I mean, for real, it was like raining slurpees. And we all just were like holding our breath like, oh, no. <laughs> Please don't cancel school. So this week is an improvement from the past few because, like I said, this is the first, the first since our return from Christmas break that there have been no synchronous learning days or e-learning. 
Additionally, today my kiddos are off of school. I have to say, it's still, it feels like a break day after parent-teacher conferences this week. So this day was a nice earned day off, particularly for the school staff. And the kids have more free choice. They get to do their thing. We had a family lunch together. And I love that. I love that. I'm soaking in the positive blades of grass again, if you will, all the life-giving moments. And that just brings me to our guest today. So today we have the privilege of having Erica McCoy with us. She is an international OCD foundation advocate, which is what we mean when we say IOCDF. She is also a mom and a wife with lived experience of OCD and comorbid mental health illnesses, and she's from the greater Kansas City, Missouri area. She has a special interest in the mental health advocacy that involves the whole person through creative expression and faith. She has a big heart for finding creative ways to bring advocacy into action and helping others find their voice. So I can't wait for you guys to meet Erica, and I'll just note that you can learn more about Erica and the great advocacy work she's doing over on OCDFamilyPodcast.com. You just go to this episode's blog, and I'll hook you guys up with all of Erica's social and her Linktree info, IOCDF, you name it. So you can always jump over there for some quick references to links. And additionally, then I also want to provide a trigger warning for today's episode because fam, we know, we know the insidious nature of OCD, right? It's cruel, so cruel, and it attacks what we value most. But it also commingles and entangles itself with co-occurring trauma or anxiety and depression and eating disorder. And this is not an exhaustive list. So we're going to be talking about a broad range of topics, including abuse, intimate partner violence, pregnancy loss, suicidal ideation, death, and other themes as well. And I get that that can bring up a lot for folks. So please be mindful of your needs in proceeding. And like I say at the top of the show, this isn't therapy. So if you or someone you love is experiencing thoughts of suicide or harm or fear for your safety, please call your country's emergency line or go to your nearest emergency room here in the States. You can call 988, that is the Suicide and Crisis Hotline, or 911 for immediate help. And with that, I really do want to introduce y'all to Erica because she's a fierce warrior, y'all. And she has experienced so many difficult, painful experiences, but she's not stuck. And that's saying a lot because OCD is pretty sticky, but she's not stuck. She's taken these blades of grass and she's created grassroots advocacy in the most beautiful of ways. So what are we waiting for? Let's get to it. Welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. I am so excited to have you all here with me today because I am meeting up with IOCDF advocate and lived experience warrior Erica McCoy. Erica, welcome to Family Time. I'm so glad you could be with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and I am very excited that you invited me on here to be a part of the OCD fam. <laughs> yes, you are. You're part of the fam for sure. Now, Erica and I first started corresponding and I totally lost sight of this conversation. <laughs> and it wasn't until your live stream around Christmas, I was like, oh my gosh, did I ever follow up with Erica? Because she has a dynamic story, and I think the more we can listen to people's stories, first of all, it validates and normalizes that we all have mental health. Second of all, 
It also provides rich perspective and insight into how OCD is affecting the person living with it, their family system, their friends. And so I am so thrilled to have you here today and really would love to first just start with Can you tell me about when you realized, A, it could be like I'm having some mental health struggles or OCD. I'm going to guess, just going on a limb here, that you didn't know it by name, OCD, at the time because so many of us have that story. But can you tell me about when you started to first understand that maybe some of these struggles were part of your mental health or OCD? Yeah, totally. I definitely knew something was different about me when I was about six. Yeah. So it started very young. Mm -hmm. I had my first mental health trip to the hospital when I was 13. Mm -hmm. And then again, when I was 25. And that's when I got my diagnosis of OCD was when that finally happened. Okay, so that's 19 years that you were total from symptom started yeah yeah which we talk about this a lot here at the podcast that one of the statistics that is well known out in the OCD community is it can take 14 to 17 years and people go what from the onset of symptoms so here we hear 19 and it's not like you had never had any interaction with mental health services but still it got missed So you started having some symptoms at age six. Do you mind me asking, and it's totally about what you're comfortable sharing, looking back in hindsight, what were some of those signs and symptoms that were starting to evidence themselves back at age six? At age six, it was definitely more of like a perfectionism, perfectionism, and which is still with me a little bit to this day, scrupulosity, moral scrupulosity. Mm-hmm. So if I didn't do things just right, then something bad was going to happen to my family, you know, or something bad was going to happen to myself. So like kidnapping and those sort of things. I mean, that was happening when I was only six years old. And that was very terrifying. But I, I also sometimes would share that with my mom or dad. And the bad part of that was that my dad was very worried about bad things happening to me. So when I would share something like that, he was like, well, of course, that's going to happen. So you need to reinforce that really that big worry. So that's a whole other story. So I don't know how much we want to get into that, but it's totally up to you. Yeah. So in my family, there's actually a lot of people that have OCD. I don't know if that's exactly what my dad had. He was a veteran of the Vietnam War. He was also a police officer at one point in time. So he had a lot of things, I think, that contributed to how worried he was. So that could have been part of it. But my mom also has OCD. My grandfather had OCD. A lot of my grandmother also on my mom's side has OCD. And also my aunt, who passed away as well, has OCD. So there's a lot of OCD rolling around in my family. Yeah. And so even non-OCD members, that environment is going to be very much affected, as we know all too well. People suffering with OCD, that environment is going to be affected by it. And so at the very least, dad may have had some trauma. He may have had just from his responsibility in law and order and just being a veteran as well some concerns around fear for your safety, harm, et cetera. 
So we could see how that was reinforced. In terms of OCD for the family members, was it once you became diagnosed that the awareness started to grow like, oh, these different people in the family are also struggling with OCD? Or did they have any knowledge of that before you officially got a diagnosis? I'm not really sure. I know that my mother, she's one of the only ones that was more proactive about her mental health. Mm -hmm. So I know that she was seeking out mental health treatment and stuff like that. My father, he was under the VA health care, so I'm not quite sure. I know he was getting a lot of trauma here. My grandparents will not go and see any sort of mental health treatment whatsoever. And then my aunt, she had been hospitalized a lot, so I'm not quite sure. But I know that I am the one that really encouraged people to get specific OCD treatment. Yeah. So, yeah. So in terms of the environment, you shared with us that you had some moral scrupulosity. Can I ask, did you also grow up in a religious household? Yeah, absolutely. And I was wondering, this isn't always like a for sure thing. People have different reasons. But I wondered if maybe part of that uh, with your grandparents, that line in the sand around treatment, were things regarded as more of a spiritual problem or needing to handle things with your religious practices over mental health? Or do you feel like it was just how they felt and more a product of cultural evolution of accepting mental health? Maybe both. I think it's a little bit of both, but also a big thing is that, unfortunately, when you have moral and religious scrupulosity, your intrusive thoughts are surrounded around God and religion, and you go to religious leaders and you tell them what's going on with you, and at least in my experiences, was not a good outcome. Yeah. And so I think there's this preconceived notion that it's a spiritual weakness that you're experiencing. You're not trusting God enough. I've had some really, really bad experiences where I was told that I had demons taking over my life. And some religious leaders were trying to do like exorcisms. Yeah, not not necessarily an exorcism, but casting out demons where they, they lay hands on you and they pray over you and it was a really terrifying experience you know you think I mean that was one of my greatest fears is that I I thought maybe the devil was taking over my life that was one of my OCD cycles you know I had all these things I thought maybe there was some sort of spiritual warfare going on with me and then I go to these faith leaders and they're basically confirming that right and so it was really challenging. And then my grandparents, you know, my my grandpa was actually a reverend. Okay. So to him, even though it's clear that to me that he had OCD tendencies for sure, did he ever get diagnosed with it? Absolutely not. But for him to have the Bible used against you for something that I was born with is really like I felt, I guess, God just brought me on this earth for me to be forever punished. And for me to go to hell no matter what is what it felt like. Yeah. Oh, that sounds so painful and scary and traumatic. And we look at things like the church or religion as a resource when we think about like external and internal resources, right? So if your external resource is A, reinforcing some of the intrusive thoughts, but also B, maybe planting some new intrusive thoughts, right? then what is a person to do? And there's already so much shame in speaking about mental health. 
often in the church, not always. So church, y'all, and again, this can be across a myriad of religions. Here's what I will say. I say at the top of the show that even though I'm a therapist, I'm not your therapist, I am also not a theologian. I think there are strengths to religion. I think there are challenges to religion. And as somebody myself that grew up in the Bible Belt, I very much understand the different denominational lines that get drawn around what is sin and what is mental health. And I think often the two get conflated. And one of the really neat things that is emerging now out of the International OCD Foundation, which we're going to talk about this in a bit because Erica is involved and I can't wait for you guys to hear this because as hard as this story is starting for her, this is a warrior story and I know that you guys are going to just be inspired by Erica. But I will say part of the movement around faith and OCD, and again, this can be faith of any different religious order. It can even be atheism. It can be a number of different areas of what you consider your spiritual health. But part of the aim in the Faith and OCD collaboration here is to really help folks understand and be paired with religious leaders, because again, therapists are not theologians, be paired with religious leaders that have an understanding for the mental health piece as well, so that it's not creating bigger trauma and more fear, but it's able to really kind of tag teamed by mental health and faith. Mental health should not pretend they're faith leaders. Faith leaders, you should not pretend you're therapists because you're not, right? And so some people are going to have issue with that because they're going to be like, hey, I have a very profound understanding of how I read my scripture, my religious text, and I am not here to change your mind on that. But what I am here to shift perspective on is that sometimes, well, spiritual warfare can have its place and many people will say it does. So period. Okay. But also mental health likes to hijack what we value, especially OCD. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a faith issue, it's a mental health issue. So mental health is holding hostage. You having a value-driven relationship in your faith, that is not a result of sin. That's a result of brain-braining. And there is a lot of hope for folks that are in that place. Okay, so I got on a little diatribe there, but it sounds like it sounds like that I have a lot of empathy. I also have multiple family members that are at different places with their disclosures. I don't necessarily name names that have had a lot of religious trauma around mental health, OCD, people utilizing things in God's name and Jesus's name that were abusive and difficult. And so I have a lot of empathy for you going through that. And having a reverend in the family, you can see then probably how important also just even being what we could call a PK, a preacher's kid, a preacher's grandkid in the family, the expectations for your perfectionism, which you were already dealing with, that standard feels higher because you're representing the family or representing the church. Did you feel some of the pressure in that as well? I don't know if you attended your grandfather's church or not. But did you feel like I do portray or emulate part of our family values? So if I'm not perfect, this reflects poorly on everybody else. Yeah. So my grandpa was a traveling. So he went to lots of different places. And yes. So the thing is, is that some of my other cousins, right, they didn't always make the best choices, which is fine. 
I didn't think that was a big deal, but I was the cousin that the quote unquote perfect and expectations on me were very high. I couldn't have problems. I had to do all of the things right. I had to get all the really good grades. So the expectations were super high on me and it was just really hard to constantly live up to that. I mean, like my grandparents did, they always took me on their little trips to, you know, my grandpa wanted to get a bus to preach the word throughout the 50 states of the United States. And he would take me, they would take me on these trips to get funding. So I had to make sure that they had me in all the sports. They had me in plays. They had me in all these things. And if I ever complained about it, I just wasn't being grateful. If I was ever like, you know, exhausted from doing all these different things, I just wasn't being grateful for the gifts that God had given. You weren't being a grateful marketing billboard for them, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean... I apologize if that's a little tongue in cheek. I no, it's okay. But I'm also <laughs> like, oh, that is that is rough because not only you're you're kind of carrying the weight of everybody's choices, and because you were the identified bright light amongst the the kiddos, that they were like, yeah, well, so you need to represent this. So not only was it, do I have the impression of it? You were basically a marketing tool on tour, and that's a lot. That sucks, Erica. I'm sorry. Well, and then, of course, my cousins were like, oh, well, you're you're always your grandma and grandpa's favorite. I mean, I, it was just like I just couldn't win. I mean, you know, I can't complain. I can't do this. I can't do that. Right. So I just had to shut up and just be what everybody wanted me to be. Oh, that is so hard. Yeah. Yeah. So in terms of leading toward your teenage years and again, I'm not going to force you to talk about anything that you're not comfortable. So please feel free to be like, girl, pass. Okay. The fam gets it, right? Like, we're already getting this gift and you sharing your story. So whatever you feel comfortable with. But you mentioned your first hospitalization was at age 13, right? Mm -hmm. And we're mentioning just kind of the pressure cooker. OCD in and of itself is a pressure cooker. And so you amplify that by the environmental expectations, the familial expectations. And so can you, if you're willing, tell us about what led to that hospitalization at 13? Yeah, I was going to a private school that was actually, I had been in private school since I was kindergarten, I think. And that was a Lutheran school. And then for high school, they sent me to... So maybe I was 14, but that was Catholic. That was a Catholic school. And I I don't know people, there is a big difference between Lutheran and Catholic. A lot of people think it's very close, but actually it really isn't. And they had said some things in religion class about Lutherans. I guess Catholics have some things that they really dislike about Lutherans. And so that was going on. And I guess I had no idea the way other religions had viewed other religions at that point in time. I guess I was a little naive on that viewpoint. And that was the first time someone actually told me, a priest actually told me that I was going to hell because of my beliefs. Oh my gosh. And it was the Catholic priest there. It was something they had written down. It was because of Martin Luther is the man that broke away from the Catholic Church originally. And they think that because of that, Lutherans are going to hell because Lutherans are kind of the ones that started all the different religions 
from the Catholic Church, I guess, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that was happening at this high school I was going to. And then my father, he had been a sick man since I was born. He had his first heart attack when I was like not even two. And at that time, they had told me that he had six months left to live. Oh, my word. And so I was just... It was just a little bit much for me. And actually what led to the hospitalization is that my therapist was five minutes late. And I don't know, I just felt like the whole world was coming to an end. And I had ended up, they made me go back to school after that therapy appointment. I was just very upset. And I ended up refusing to go back to class. And I curled up in a little ball and I refused to come out of the office, even though, I mean, I just felt like I was dying because my therapist was five minutes late. And I didn't really know why, but... Yeah. I guess I was just kind of the straw that broke the camel's broke the back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's what led to my hospitalization there. I just felt frozen. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's what did it. So going in, and I'm guessing this was then an inpatient hospitalization. It was a partial. Okay. It was yeah. a partial hospitalization, which for mm-hmm. folks, can you help explain what a partial hospitalization entails, what the regimen is? more or less yes uh a partial hospitalization i so i had to go to the hospital for i believe it was like half a day Mm -hmm. like four or five hours a day Mm -hmm. and i did do group therapy and i had some one-on-one therapy and then i would go back home to my family and then the next day i would come back and do those sort of things again right yeah so it's almost like a job yeah. And and another yeah. another way people describe this sometimes is intensive outpatient therapy, but that can usually be less than the partial hospitalization is literally like a school day, a, a work day of yeah. intensive treatment. Okay. And so at the time, was anybody at the hospital able to recognize that a lot of these fears were being reinforced within your environment? Or I, I know they didn't get OCD yet because you didn't get that diagnosis until you were 25 but how was that addressed at the time as a teenager well I know they really realized that I was in an unhealthy family dynamic so that was brought up I like abuse to my father my dad was actually very uh because of his military background and stuff like that at my house it was very ran like a military thing so I think the reason why I didn't get caught as OCD is because my dad had been feeding me this information about like murder and stuff like that. So they thought it was more of a response to the environment, kind of the environment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like my grand, my dad thought my grandpa was like recording us at my house and he would tell us all the time, like, be careful what you say inside the house because your grandpa's listening to us and stuff like that it was very confusing and weird yeah you know and like he would make me walk around with like a walkie-talkie outside and I had to report back to him and say like 410 you know 410 over and out and stuff like that it was just some really strange things yeah so they thought at the time they thought I had general anxiety disorder Mm -hmm. based on how my dad had been forcing me to do all these rituals and like military type things right drills and, and then yeah you know i had a lot of weird punishments that would be considered like what you would see maybe in a military boot camp or something like that and then you know dealing with his impending death and so they thought that's what i was reacting to. dealing with mm-hmm. yeah 
And can you tell me, were you an only child? Did you have siblings in the house? I was an only child. Okay. So, <laughs> so there was nobody else. Yeah. Okay. So you were like isolated in that. Yes. How would your mother react? Was she around? Were your parents together? Or how would your mother react in that environment? And did you feel like you could speak to her about your concerns? Or what was that like? So my mom was working. They were together. But my mom was working three jobs and she was in the Navy Reserves. So she just really honestly wasn't around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So everybody was involved some way in the military yes. or law and order for police. Mm -hmm. At the time when you were hospitalized, was your dad still working or was he a retired yeah. policeman and he was on disability waiting for this heart issue to continue? I mean, I know he was definitely on VA disability by that point in time. By the time I came around, really, I mean, he he was done with the I don't know if it's technically retired. He had gotten hurt and all that stuff. So, OK. Yeah. OK. And then how often would you see your cousins? I know you were taken on the bus tours with grandma and grandpa and whatnot. Were cousins in the same town? Was this like something where you would see extended family and do things quite a bit together or was that a little more rare? I really only saw my cousins on the holidays, like Christmas, maybe. OK, gotcha. But I really I saw my grand my grandparents live next door. And so I saw my grandma and grandpa a lot because my dad liked to go out and gamble. <laughs> and so that's another reason why my mom had so many jobs to kind of try to, like, keep everything together. And so I would spend most of my time with my grandparents or my aunt. And so. And was this the aunt that was also struggling with her mental health and had the multiple yeah. hospitalizations? Okay. Yes. So you were either, no matter what, it sounds like it was really a restricted, controlled environment, whether it was at home or militant, whether there was this regimen of you needing to do all the things at school, which in some ways may have felt like a safer space. To it did, yeah. It's, Absolutely. So that also reinforces, yeah, I want to do this stuff because it helps me not be home and have to worry or it keeps me busy and sidetracked from all of these really oh. scary intrusive thoughts. And then you had the higher controlled experience around your grandpa's congregation or church or ministry. Ministry is probably the better word. Ministry. Uh, yeah. As a traveling kind of reverend, et cetera. And then your aunt, did she live in the same town? As you guys. And okay. And so you would see her or grandparents most often. Mom was kind of just busy and gone. Yes. Working. Yeah. Working. Right. Okay. So at that age, having that insight of, oh, this isn't healthy and these dynamics, no wonder this is causing you a lot of distress. How did you feel emerging out of the hospitalization did you feel like you had some renewed hope did you feel like you had to say the right answers did you feel like you were just floating from thing to thing <laughs> I just felt like I, I felt like I didn't know why I was there because honestly a lot of the people I mean I was hopeful because I was like oh maybe someone will see what's going on and help me but then I also got there and there were children in there and I felt like, oh, my gosh, these these kids are so much worse than me. What am I doing in here? So I, I guess I was always felt with this like permanent guilt of I'm not allowed to have problems. Yeah. 
And you know what I mean? And this is what problems look like. And so I've seen my cousins. I've seen the people here in the hospital. Like, I need to just more or less get, get it together, together and, right yeah. yeah i know i mean when i went in there i was just like oh my gosh i just saw the people that were in inpatient and they were really struggling you know suicide attempts and stuff like that and i was just like i have no business taking up space in here is what i was thinking and so i mean i did tell them what was going on i mean they made me rake on a scale from one to ten like what is being late and ten was like world war three and i was like oh 12 i mean off the chart yeah you know and to me that felt so stupid for me to say that compared to the people that were in there that were really obviously really struggling i just felt like i need to i need to get my stuff together and just get out of here because there's kids in here that are really struggling and really need help and i just need to move on and get over myself you know mm-hmm. yeah. is what I was feeling yeah yeah and that shame it feels like could just guilt and shame I think could probably both be there but it's like yeah that is that's some intensity and I'm so glad you said it Erica because I think there's a lot of people listening that can feel that way at times like my problems compared to what's happening and countries people are waking up with bombings going on and things like that like how can I or even within that more remote hospital setting you have people that might feel suicidal or homicidal or they're in danger of hurting themselves or others and you go like well I'm here taking up the space but the reality was you were there with a debilitating situation an environment that was only reinforcing it and you absolutely deserve the time and space it doesn't have to be to the scale of anybody else to be your own personal hell and you were already terrified beyond that of i don't think i'm going to hell because somebody they wrote it down they they left receipts they were like you hey you then you're going to hell that had to feel so terrifying and so in terms of also trying to wrap your mind around everything that I've learned growing up and has been thrown at me in terms of my understanding of my faith is now being like completely shamed by my school experience. And I mean, it must have just been such a confusing time. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you were feeling like I don't belong anywhere I don't know what to do. Just feeling stuck in that or frozen, like you said, like, oh, what what is what does somebody do with that? And so you're moving into your high school years, which are formative years. And tell me what happened next. Did you end up staying at that high school and graduating there? Or what was what was the road ahead through? She's like, no, no, (laughs) negative, negative, negative ghostwriter. Okay, absolutely not. Tell me what happened next then. So you were at least able to get to a new school. Okay. Yeah. Thankfully, the good thing about my mother is that when she figures stuff out, she really comes to full force. When she found out what was happening in the religion class and all that, she was like, this is not going on any longer. And she did get me into a public school, which was really awesome. I mean, I heard horrible things about public school, but when I got there, there were so many different types of people. There was class sizes were huge. I mean, my eighth grade class had 12 people in it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it was just awesome just to be around and just witness all types of people getting along with one another. 
this big scary thing that was public school was not scary at all. I mean, I was just like, this is amazing. So I kind of really blossomed. I did get a little bit out of control <laughs> for a little bit. That did happen. I think it was natural, though, just because I didn't really have any help. Yeah. You know, I did end up back at a psychiatrist's office when I was 17. I honestly don't know. My mom would know what they diagnosed me with, but I just know they gave me like one medication and that was it. I didn't go to any therapist or anything like that. And I only went a couple times. So I have no idea yeah. what all happened. I know it was mostly because my mom thought I was really having a hard time. I mean, I got in a car accident when I was 15 mm-hmm. and I ended up getting a traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I started having a couple problems. And that's when my mom, I had to go see neurologists and all these different doctors. And then that one of the doctors referred me to go to a psychiatrist. So it took like a year and a half after going to all these different doctors. And then they sent me to a psychiatrist. And I only went there for like not even quite a year, like just one or two visits, I think. And I don't know what they end up doing. I think I only took like one medication. So I don't know what happened then. Yeah, yeah. But I graduated. I mean, that's amazing. And I think the fam listening is going to be with me when they say like, oh, my gosh, it's already hard enough. Then you're dealing with a TBI on top of that. Uh, TBI certainly can impact our emotions, our feelings, our motor planning, so many different pieces of that. You said you got a little out of control there for a while. But what I love what she said next, fam, did you catch it? She said, I think that was kind of normal. That was kind of understandable, right? Considering any one of those things would have been hard, living with OCD, having a TBI, having the environment, so many different aspects of that. And so I think it's reality that if we don't have that support and you're trying to cope through some pretty big things in every direction, then whether you call it out of control or surviving or pushing through to live another day and see another day, you did it. You battled through those years. And I don't think anybody can argue with that. You survived a very tough childhood. And so when you graduated from high school, what came next for you? It sounds like you had a few of those psychiatrist appointments at 17. Were you on that medication for an extended period of time? Not really. No. Okay. <laughs> no. So you were no. like, that That was over and done pretty quick. And so what happened after high school? What was next for you? Yeah, I was actually excited. I rarely ever went to high school, but I did graduate with the 2.99. And I am super excited about that. I didn't even think I was going to graduate, but that happened. And then I did actually end up going to college. Mm-hmm. And I went to a little community college around here and I got an actual associate's degree, which I didn't think was going to be a possibility. And I actually got a 4.0. I graduated with a 4.0. So look at you. What's your associate's degree in? Hospitality management. Look at her. She's hospitality management. I love that. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. And a 4.0. That's amazing. Yeah, I was so I mean, I love hotels and hospitality management. I was going to go for interior design, but then the housing market crash. Yeah. Right around that time. And I was like, I'm not going to waste money on a degree that like nobody can even afford houses right now. So fair. (laughs) Totally. You know, but I do. I love I love hotels. And so I went and did that. And 
I actually really enjoyed getting that degree. It was really fun and involved a lot of different things. And I did really well at it. And then I started to go obtain my bachelor's. And that is when, once again, everything went. I don't know if I could. Uh, <laughs> everything went to shit again. Yes, you can say shit. I say okay. it all the time. I said it before. You know, I actually make no restrictions on that because okay. I think OCD sometimes is like, what if you say the wrong thing? And I'm like, you know what? We're going to say it and I'm not even mad at it. Like, we're going to say no matter what. So, yes, you've been through shit. Things went to shit. We'll call it what it is. Shit. <laughs> okay. All right. So things went to shit, which is also a very relatable experience. There is a lot of upticks that happen if we look at some of the research and we look at some of the data around 19 or people are going to college at later times than that even. But that environment, the independence and or changes and the shifts that can happen around that age and around the new experience of independence or lack thereof, if OCD is being really controlling, it's very common for folks to have flares or really notice the flare there at college age. So to the degree that you feel comfortable sharing, what happened for you? And, and were you still living with mom and at home or were you living in the community or on campus? What was that like for you? Yeah, actually, I moved out when I was 17. Yeah. You're so like, I had to live with my hell out of there. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I'm done. Thank you. But actually what happened is that I had been in a very like a domestic violence relationship situation. And when I had graduated with my associate's degree, I would have been that was in 2012. So I would have been 21 mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. And I had been with somebody that was very violent towards me, had hurt me physically pretty badly. And I had decided that I had my degree and I was going to be done with that. And I actually just didn't even get anything. I just up and left. Good for you. That's so hard. That, I, I didn't care anymore. I was like, I am actually capable of finishing something with honors. And I'm not the piece of crap that this man tells me that I am. So that's what happened. Yeah. And then shortly after that, my mother, who had always been my rock, she had a horrible stroke. Shortly after that. And she did live, but it has been downhill since then. And that's kind of when everything started to go downhill. My OCD at that time, I thought it was working for me because, you know, I had I was over a full time student. I was leading study groups. I actually had an eating disorder at that time, but it was all based off my OCD, actually. You know, I couldn't eat anything more than 300 500 or 700 calories and all that. But I was like, but I'm being successful. So everything's good, you know, but it kind of all came crashing down because I had worn myself out. And then my mom having that horrible stroke just made really everything come crashing down, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, like we talked earlier about the straw that broke the camel's back and it's like you rebounded and you did this amazing thing of being able to get through this program let alone having a 4.0 and you left this abusive relationship and then yeah all of these different things pile up and yeah OCD we can hear it can't we fam that controlling little jerk OCD gave you specific calorie counts that you had to abide by gave you different rules and in some ways I would imagine that rules as hard as they are probably felt really containing and familiar because you grew up in a very rule-bound environment. 
And so even when you think about something about being in a relationship where domestic violence can occur, you can see how the control in a way probably felt familiar to growing <laughs> up and walkie-talkie, 410 and out, you know, all of these things. Like, yes, it, it probably really resonated in certain ways, but absolutely you did not deserve that. And it it's amazingly difficult to leave and you did that and then your rock just shatters before you and it's it's really hard when you have somebody experience a health episode like that because even though they're still here the person that they were that you knew is different and so it's like they're here but they're not and so you're grieving but you're happy that they survived it and it is it's a very complicated ball of evolving emotions around that and so that's incredibly difficult. So you were in college. You had left this really, this violent relationship. You were leading study groups. You're full time. This happened with mom and everything just started to crumble. Yeah. But then I did get my like dream job hotel wise. So I yeah. was like, okay, well, here we go. And then my dad was still alive at this point. <laughs> Ironically, right? They said six months to live when you're 14. And defied the years. Yes. Still alive. Oh, my God. And I became his power of attorney when I was 17. Okay. And so I was taking care of his financial needs and his medical needs to a man that I didn't know it was abuse. But after talking to therapists and stuff, he was abusing me. But, Can I ask uh, Erica real quick why they yeah. didn't make mom the power of attorney at the time? Cause this because this would have been a had... stroke, right? Yes, but they had gotten divorced when I was 15. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and I'm the only child, so I was the one that had to take. Oh my gosh! Responsibility. That is uh, uh, right. It was just a lot going on, and he started like really degrading, and he got on the life or death surgery list. So every time he would go into surgery, we had to go say goodbye to him, like he was dying. I mean, it was just, and that went on for years, you know, because he didn't actually pass away until I was 26 years old. So that would have been 2016, and so. What happened was actually things were felt kind of okay. Even with my mom's stroke, she actually did pretty good with her recovery. But then I would say it was 2012 when things started getting like to the point where I was like, okay, something's definitely wrong here with my mental health. You know what I mean? Like I had been going through these motions of a lot of things going on and I think just things started catching up with me. You know, like I was having to take off a lot of time from work to take care of my dad because I was his power of attorney and stuff. And then my mom was needing a lot of help. And I ended up having a miscarriage in 2013. And because I had met my my husband, who was a wonderful man. He is such a great person. I am so thankful that I actually met somebody that truly cares for me and has stuck through all of these things. <laughs> yeah. But one thing that I knew something weird was going on was that I was making chicken. I was meal prepping for the week, right? And I felt, I guess I felt like the chicken wasn't cooking, right? Mm -hmm. And I just threw out like 20 chicken breasts because mm -hmm. I was so frustrated. And that's just kind of when I noticed things were just starting to go downhill. And also my physical health started going down. I started getting migraines, really, really bad migraines. And I had that experience back when I got in the car accident with my TBI, but it had been years since it was really bad. So I was going to the hospital to get the migraine cocktail. 
I started getting these migraines that mimic strokes, and those were really scary. Especially after mom's had a stroke, has to be yeah. pretty terrifying, yeah. Yeah, and so I was just starting having some weird physical things happening, and so I got tested for MS and all of these different things, and they couldn't find anything. So then I'm like, am I going crazy? And then I started cleaning, a lot of cleaning, you know, and my work started suffering. So now we're at, like, 2014, right? So this had been going on for a couple years now. My son was born. I had a son, okay? He was born, and I had some postnatal postpartum yeah issues that were a little strange yeah and you don't have to go into the different thoughts what I will just say yeah. and normalize for anybody that might be listening it's not uncommon for OCD again attacking what you value the sweet little vulnerable little baby if I can hurt this baby what if I did something you know that would cause harm etc and of course there can be also even magical links that if I don't arrange these things correctly, something bad could happen. So you don't have to go into the details, but yeah. I just want to normalize it. I mean, you can if you want, but I'm just saying it, it's a very common thing when folks and sometimes a fear that people even have about having children. And it's not a guarantee that you're going to have a theme around your baby at that time or that it wouldn't show up later. It's not a guarantee one way or another. It just it speaks to the nature of OCD tending to strike where we value and so you're experiencing strange postpartum kind of thoughts feelings maybe images around this time of early motherhood and what happened next yeah and my son had colic so that definitely did not oh. make it any better yes yeah <laughs> which i just want to let anybody know if you go through a if you have a baby that has colic i wouldn't even let's forget about the ocd that is like the hardest thing you will ever go through so, whether you have ocd or not it was oh my gosh it was the most hard oh yeah i still have nightmares sometimes over the colic yeah <laughs> oh my yeah. goodness yeah well it's what's funny funny not funny but but when we started having kids my husband and i i was like you never know if the baby's gonna have colic or not until the baby's there right and my husband's like, how about we just decide to have non-colicky babies? And I was like, you know what? First of all, if pregnancy worked the way I was told as a child, a stork carries a sweet little baby, you can choose that. Like, no, you don't get to choose that. And so for anyone who isn't a parent that might be listening or it's not familiar with colic, it is very, very hard to soothe the child. And the child is going to cry quite a bit. And they may even have issues where it was hard to eat and then they throw up everything they ate because they're so upset and yeah. they have a lot of reflux. And then you're like, oh, I can't, I can't. And so you're right, OCD or not, colic is no joke. <laughs> but you add OCD on top of what's already an exhausted mom with a newborn baby that cannot calm down. And it is, it is extremely hard. Yeah, so that was 2013. And then, so basically what my aunt, so we're now we're talking about my aunt that I spent all this time with, right? My aunt, Melissa. Uh-huh. She started acting, something was wrong with her. And it was mental health wise. It was very clear something was not right. She was stalking me. She was... Something was not right. And I know she had bipolar, but something wasn't right. And it was terrifying. I was very scared and I didn't know what was going on. Well, I'm not going to get into all the details. because It's a long story. But basically what ended up happening and where my final 
absolute breakdown that led to my OCD diagnosis, okay, is that my aunt went missing in May of 2015. And that was absolutely the worst thing that has ever happened. It affected everything in my whole entire life because my aunt was like my second mom because, you know, my mom was working all the time. So I was either at my grandparents or my aunt's house. And my aunt, she was the one that did all the fun things with, you know, I would go over to her house and watch movies or or do crafts and all these things. And over the course of like, even in high school, I, I knew something was going wrong with her, but I didn't know what it was. And she was just acting so strange. But You know, I just kept thinking, oh, maybe she's just going through a hard time and she'll get better. And she never really got better. And then we actually had to stop communicating with her about eight months before she went missing because of the stalking and stuff. And I had to get a restraining order against her. I was wondering if you had like a TRO, which for any of our international fam or folks that have the privilege of not knowing what a TRO stands for, that's a temporary restraining order. So you guys had to cut off communication. Was that an order for a year? Actually, it was prolonged to two years because of how erratic she acted in front of the judge. Oh, my word. Okay. She almost actually went to jail because she wouldn't behave herself in the courtroom. Yeah. And so I still had a lot of hope thinking that she would get better and that the two years after the two years, we would be able to reconnect. She just needed some help. But then we got the she was missing. And it was so strange because everyone had my grandmother had even stopped talking to me because, you know, my aunt lived there. My aunt was so upset that we did this restraining order. But she was threatening harm, like physical harm to my son and to us. And nobody was believing us. So I felt extra crazy. I was just like, what is going on? You know, and so I did this restraining order and my grandma stopped talking to me and everything. And so I just had a feeling something had happened to her. I don't know why, but I reached out to her brother-in-law and I said is everything okay and they're like no she's missing and I thought it was a joke I really did I was like what and I looked on the Missouri Highway Patrol and sure enough there was a missing persons report for her and it went on like that for almost seven months before her body was found and the guilt and shit just so much I mean I was already having problems at work before this happened because that was 2015 And my job, I was telling them I was having problems. I mean, because at this point in time, my dad was doing really bad because that was not even quite a year before he died. And so I was being called out of work constantly to take him to the hospital and stuff like that. And so the amount of rechecking and checking I was doing in my job, I was doing horrible at my job. And I so I shared with them that I said something was wrong with me and I didn't know what it was, but. I'm not trying to be bad at my job on purpose, but something's wrong. And then they pulled me out of work when I finally got diagnosed, but it was because of what all happened with my aunt. I mean, I wouldn't stop searching. I I mean, I became upset. I mean, I think most people would maybe, but my OCD latched on to my aunt being missing. I mean, I would stay up all night and I would search the Missouri Highway missing person thing and I would look at her Facebook and try to see where she's checked in. And I was doing a lot of dangerous things even to try to figure out, like try to help find where she went because people have family issues all the time. And one would never, ever, ever, ever think that the end of that would be the person go missing. That would never be what you would think would happen. 
You know what I mean? And that's what happened in this case scenario. And there's some other things I'm not going to share because it's probably too graphic for this. (laughs) But we still don't know to this day what happened to her. It's an unsolved, undetermined, unknown case. And I will say one thing about it, though, is that it has helped me learn. I've been forced to deal with that uncertainty because there, I tried absolutely everything one could ever think of to try to help find her, try to help solve her case. And there's literally nothing I can do. I've exhausted all effort. So it has forced me yeah. to accept it. I mean, there's literally nothing I can do. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I'm sure the fam is, is here with me and just going, oh, girlfriend, like, I'm I'm so sorry. This wasn't your fault. I totally can just imagine. And even then, I can only imagine how OCD really latched onto that and that hyper responsibility that OCD is so good at injecting and also feeling like, yes, you love this person. You didn't want to have to have a restraining order. You wanted the best for her and you didn't wish this upon her and just going through this experience. I mean, it's just trauma after trauma and it wasn't your fault and you deserve to be protected. And I'm so sorry that you suffered so much trauma really in rapid succession it just probably felt like what now right yeah i mean i remember saying to my therapist like what more could possibly fucking go wrong in the course of only 25 years and of being on planet i mean my god i just i don't know how much more i can take right that was the hardest thing for me it was just one thing after another and it just seemed like an extreme amount of things to happen to one person it is and we wouldn't even wish one thing upon you of that list and and that is a lot so your feelings are valid in that absolutely yeah so you ended up coming out of work around the time that it was discovered that your aunt was no longer with us missing was missing, missing. not with us okay yeah okay so around that time and then you ended up did you have another partial hospitalization where they came up with the OCD diagnosis or how did that translate then into them going, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Um, all the trauma so is valid, but yes, also, <laughs> also. <laughs> yeah. So they tried to do the intensive outpatient. I did a lot of those, by the way, at this point in time. Yeah. <laughs> but these were at like, not at a hospital, but at a therapy Center. place. Mm-hmm. But I did a lot of them. I mean, I did intensive outpatient therapy groups for probably about two years one right after another all focused on different things though trauma and those sort of things but I got that diagnosis I want to say my last day of work was probably she went missing in May and my last day of work was June maybe July and so by that point in time they had gotten me diagnosed I don't know if it was just my psychiatrist or it was a mix of one of the IOPs. They put me in IOP right away mm-hmm. when I first visited my psychiatrist. Okay. Yeah. So they recognized the intensity and the need. And so when we think family about higher levels of care, an outpatient therapy might be once a week. We could consider anything from twice a week, although folks listening may have loved ones or themselves in ERP treatment, et cetera, where it's needed more than once a week. But Anytime we move that notch up to include more services, that is what we consider a higher level of care. And it doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It just means, wow, 
the brain is braining so hard here with OCD or whatever the related issue could be, trauma certainly, that we need a higher level of care because it is just, it's that difficult. And so doing IOPs, intensive outpatients, again, be a couple hours a week. It could be three hours a day. It can range. And so you were participating in that. Yes. And when they diagnosed you with that, did they tell you anything in terms of treatment modalities that would help? Were they mainly medicating that or? I had to get my, the trauma stuff under control. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I, we did the trauma. We did trauma and I did DBT. Yeah. Which actually helped a lot with my OCD. I know radical acceptance yeah. because I honestly have had so much messed up stuff happened the only thing that really helped me was just like radical acceptance i i had to have that radical acceptance component and then i did end up doing a full hospitalization that did not happen until november though okay so for people listening dbt is dialectical behavioral therapy similar to cbt there are lots of different variations of that and the one that erica's describing is called rodbt so radically open dialectical behavioral therapy and it is indicated well it's often utilized in different mental health disorders where you're going to have some very big emotions and they may change quickly. And so DBT is a very well-researched and well-studied treatment regimen. And I'm not surprised, actually, that that was helpful in terms of just, yes, the extremes of what you had experienced. So you ended up doing some of that and you ended up then six or so months later, going inpatient. And were they doing DBT inpatient as well? Or was there a specific way that they were trying to address your OCD? Did they understand OCD at your inpatient facility? She's like, no. Please, yeah. Nicole, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? I mean, I think my inpatient was just to try to get me. So by that point in time, my OCD had gone on too long without getting like actual appropriate treatment. And it was getting to a point where I would say straight paranoia. Okay. I don't know if you've heard that before, but that's where I was at. There was like the six and 13s. Like I was like so hyper vigilant and just paranoid. Like I was for certain I was schizophrenic or something like that. And my aunt still had not been found. Right. And there was like this mix between scrupulosity and relationship OCD that like God, it's going to sound really weird, but I don't mind sharing it at all, but that God had sent me my son as like the Antichrist or something. I don't know. I was just so out of it and so paranoid. And I was worried that people were watching me and... I basically, and then I had a suicide attempt because of those things. So I felt like they sent me there and they loaded me up with a whole bunch of Seroquel. <laughs> yes, they did, which is for anybody listening, Seroquel is an antipsychotic medication and it is not atypical to go into a hospital and be given a dose of an antipsychotic and really be zombified until you're not in a place where you want to hurt anybody or maybe even really register much because you can feel like such a zombie under those medications, discharge back into the community. And then you have to go on that journey of, oh, this thing that brought me here is 
still here and this medication is really zonking me out. So we need to adjust that medication. And a lot of people that have gone through hospitalizations can relate to that. I'm not saying there's no place for something like Seroquel. And from my understanding from some of the great OCD psychiatrists in this field, it can be a good augmentation strategy when you are experiencing some delirium or psychosis because of the severity of the level of the intrusive thoughts. And that is fairly normal. What's abnormal, which I wish was more normal and I, a girl can help, but we having these conversations are moving us closer to that mark is that inpatient people would learn how to recognize what OCD is because chances are they are seeing a good amount of the OCD population that have gone through those really severe episodes. And one of the differences we can tell regarding OCD and true psychosis, if you get medication and some sleep under your belt and you are suddenly doing better, that's not what we consider a psychotic episode. That doesn't go away like that. Has had that fear of, oh my gosh, am I having schizophrenia? Which tip number one, folks, this is not like, again, I'm not your therapist. This isn't diagnostic information. But if you're worried that you have schizophrenia, <laughs> You're not you're, you're schizophrenic. Not. You're not. <laughs> yeah. Even the most impressive functioning in the midst of an episode like that, that wouldn't necessarily happen like that yet. So, yeah, I, <laughs> I totally am vibing with you there. And so you went through that. You were put on a bunch of Seroquel. You were discharged. Did you still have yes. fears around your son and some of the scrupulosity around some of the... I, my son used to have such an issue with 6 and 13 too so I'm like yep gotcha yep it's the devil's number right <laughs> like it's <laughs> yes, yes. yes if you didn't grow up in Christianity or Catholicism or, or I don't know how well known that is or not but yes and 13 floors twilight zone 13 is the bad number so it's like everywhere yeah no actually no I don't have that anymore at all so great we love that. Just, uh, it was a, a night before I was playing darts and every dart landed on six or 13. I mean, it was just like, it was just, it felt like it was everywhere. I was just being hyper aware. And they did know I had OCD when I went into the hospital. So I guess they just gave me all that Seroquel just to, I guess, get my mind to calm down or something. I don't know. But it wasn't bad. I mean, we did a lot of like art and crafts, which I loved. Yeah. <laughs> and it really helped me. So Good. even though maybe they didn't give me ERP, I still... I guess got something out of it and it did help me regroup my thoughts yeah. a little bit, you know, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. And that's good. That's, you know, that was at the very least needed some ability to feel like I'm not stuck in this personal torture loop of these same fears. We were able to have that reset in a way. And so I'm happy to hear that. And so what happened then post-hospitalization? I know that you continue to do work with art and different things in terms of your advocacy because you promote that as a wonderful yes. coping skill, which is great. It is. But what led from leaving that experience to where you are now as an international OCD foundation advocate, peer advocate, and you also, I should say, have a very lively Instagram account where you are constantly working on your advocacy and getting the message out there and one of the places we reconnected because you were doing a a how long was it was it 12 well that hours. is still very instagram long live. yes <laughs> so she did an instagram live feed for 12 hours featuring so many people from the ocd 
community, which is amazing. Just even recognizing that Christmas time can be a triggering time and where people can be overwhelmed with lots of feelings, including sadness. And she did a blue Christmas theme where she just helped raise awareness, which was amazing. So what led you from going from hospitalization time to present and becoming an OCD advocate? Yeah. So after that hospitalization, I had to do ERP on my own with minimal supervision from a doctor. That was super hard. So hard. I do not recommend. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't know this because you told me that in the live stream. And I'm like, holy crap, woman. And now knowing like what battles you have been through, the least of your struggles, I'm sure, was doing ERP on your own with the battles you've been through. And yet that's not minimizing it. ERP is hard, y'all. ERP is hard. (laughs) Okay. So you were self-doing ERP. Was that partly because there weren't really providers around or what was that? Yeah. Well, here in Kansas City, we have one place. It's called the Kansas City Anxiety Institute. It is actually over in Kansas, though, not Missouri. There's two Kansas City, Kansas. There's Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas. And I looked into them back in the day. My insurance did not cover it and super expensive. I don't know what the pricing is now, but way out of my capabilities to afford. And so my doctor, actually my psychiatrist, he actually knew quite a bit about OCD. So I was very lucky about that. And he started telling me how to do ERP. And I got like the OCD workbook, like the OG OCD workbook. Oh, yeah. Um, And I started working on that. And yeah, he just gave me like how to do it and the hierarchy stuff. And I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. I mean, I would have definitely preferred to have someone there with me. But I was like, you know, I've been there a lot and I think I can handle this. If it's going to make me better, then I'm willing to do it. Well, and this is also part of where I think RODVT and being able to radically accept because going into it and feeling the distress and you were a pro experiencing distress and coping. But at the same time, like, yeah, because for folks that are not familiar with exposure and response prevention, we won't go uh, a giant bit into it right now. But essentially, it's exposing yourself to those OCD triggers and resisting the response prevention is resisting those compulsions because what we've learned is engagement in the compulsions actually reinforce that stickiness of the intrusive thought in the brain. And so it's very hard because if it was as easy as not compulsing, y'all would have done, I would have done, we all would have done that a long time ago. We didn't need somebody to be like, maybe this looking up things all night and evaluating the six, maybe we should just not do that. Oh, okay. Like it's not an easy thing. And compulsions can also shape shift too. So as you're trying to resist it, sometimes it's hard to know. Am I still compulsing in a way? Am I not? And so that's one of the reasons why having a therapist help facilitate that, that has an understanding and can be like a referee and be like, you're good or okay, let's try again and see if we can modify this a bit more can be really helpful in stair-stepping through that. But you're right. You were like, with the shit I've been through, Yes. I mean, I 10 out of 10 would not recommend having to do this on my own. However, better than the alternative. Right. 
So you engage then in your own self-implementation. It's not that it can't be done, especially as a recovering perfectionist. We can be really good at implementing something, right? But you went through that process and did you notice a decrease in OCD or how was that process for you? There are some things I noticed right away, for sure. I know the hardest thing of doing your own is the awareness that this might be a compulsion, it might not be a compulsion. That was the hardest thing to do on my own. And that's why I'm glad I did have my doctor to meet with, you know, monthly. Sometimes he would meet with me twice a month mm-hmm. so I could show him what I was doing and he would give me his insight of, hey, that might actually be an area where you're compulsing still. Because there's some things where I'm like, I don't know. Who knows, you know? But I think that the biggest thing for me was that I tried to think of it as like people without OCD, what would they do? Mm -hmm. And that's what helped me the most. Yeah. Is there something that a person without OCD would do? Okay, well, then we're good. Yeah, you know, and this is something that is feedback often given to families, especially when we're thinking about something like family accommodation. But even on last week's podcast with Catherine Goldhouse, where we were talking about, would you still be doing this if this wasn't OCD's story? It's another variation of looking at that and going, okay, so if I didn't have OCD, if this story wasn't here, if this intrusive thought wasn't here, would I be doing this? Okay, yep, I'm kind of matching where people are at. And I think that is a good strategy. So you were utilizing what resources you had available, and I think that was a good one. I, th- I, would, I would advise that even for someone that does have a therapist guiding them through that. So I think that is good. Yeah, my favorite thing to do is just find little glimmers of joy. Mm-hmm. And that's what helped yeah. the most. I mean, like things in life are just kind of poopy sometimes, you know, and what helped me a lot, (laughs) helped me the most when I was going through this, especially more so on my own was like, and people think I'm weird, but like, I try to find like the greenest blade of grass I can find. And I celebrate that, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that's an art really to, because a lot of people really struggle to find the positive in different situations. And so I think this is part of what helps hope thrive is when we're able to not feel so, so absorbed by all the difficulty. Because again, it's totally understandable. We look at what is obsessional doubt bringing, what kind of stress are these intrusive thoughts bringing? Plenty. But you've also dealt with a lot of shit that is real trauma. And it's plenty as well. And we look at that and you're still able to find a blade of grass. You find that blade. You celebrate that (laughs) blade. That's a great blade. Yes, we are here for it. So you have found your ways to find a blade of grass. And how did that lead to the IOCDF? Yes, absolutely. So I guess I'm still considered new to the more public advocacy, right? But I have been doing local and family and local community advocacy since I first got diagnosed with OCD because I was like, oh my gosh, I've had OCD for this long and nobody around me knew to help me, you know? I mean, other than my uncle, he did help me because I was, you know, I called him before I reached out to anybody and I was like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but I am staying up all hours of night and just cleaning in sets of three fives and sevens. You know, I'm mopping the floor seven times and I'm like, it's madness. What is happening? And he was the only one that was like, you know, maybe you might want to go to a psychiatrist because maybe you have OCD. You know? 
Good job, Uncle. <laughs> yes. When, snaps for Uncle Mark. Yes. You know? Yes. <laughs> snaps, Uncle Mark. We see you, boo. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, I was just so I was just like, man, my whole entire even when I was a kid, like when I was six, you look back at my like drawing journals and I would draw the same picture over and over and over again. And I would circle different parts of it and it would say good. And then the next part I would circle it and say bad. And I would just do that over and over again. And to me, that was like evident that I had that perfectionism OCD thing. Oh, sure. So since 2015, I was mostly advocating for the people around me here in Kansas City to like know what OCD was. So because I know there's so many people just like me that are suffering for so long, but yet the signs are there and nobody knows what the signs are. And so that's what I had been doing since 2015. But then enter my Instagram, <laughs> which I only started doing the OCD advocacy, I believe, was like last year, mm-hmm. 2022, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that started when I joined the Faith and OCD Special Interest Group. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to just do it. I'm going to put myself out there and say that I advocate for OCD in a public way and see what happens. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and at this point, when you joined and started doing more public advocacy, so I know that you've talked about that your dad has now passed. Is your mom mm-hmm. still with us or has she passed as well? She is, but she's so, having a real hard time. But yes, yeah, she is still with us. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and when did your dad pass? Was that after you found out your diagnosis? Yes. Okay. 2016 is when he passed away. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, there there continues to be a loss. There continues to be some struggle. There's probably a part of you that even feels relief, and then you feel guilt about feeling relief and all the things, but you've done nothing wrong. You've survived. You've done nothing wrong. And so this is, it is amazing that you've been able to do this grassroots level in your community. I think that needs to happen, especially, yeah, absolutely. especially in these more rural areas that are going to have a lot of their population that grew up there, their parents grew up there, their parents' parents grew up there. And in terms of spreading, even breaking down the stigma for mental health at large, let alone OCD, so important. And so that work is valued. And anybody listening that is doing that work is valued. You don't have to be linked with International OCD Foundation to be an advocate. You've been an advocate for years. So good on you. Thank you for utilizing and taking your strength that everything you've experienced and giving it back to the community. That is such a beautiful thing. And it's seen and appreciated. And it's amazing that you're able to do that. And we see you and we're so thankful. Well, you know, my favorite thing to do, and because of the rural thing, you brought that up, is that I started painting rocks. Uh Uh-huh. For OCD awareness and they're teal colored rocks and I paint pictures on them and then I have the IOCDF information on them uh-huh. and then I just put them outside for random people to find. I love that around the city and, and all of that around the city and then like when I go on road trips especially in the rural areas I like to put them out especially in the rural like in the middle of nowhere Missouri I love putting them out there and that's one of the the initiatives that I started and I think it was 20 yeah OCD week 2022 yeah. is when I started doing that and they've gone all over the place I love that doing that and it's a good it's a fun thing to do 
And it also is a good way for really random people to find out about OCD because you don't know who's going to come across those rocks whatsoever. I I love that, too, because not everyone is going to feel comfortable striking a conversation, particularly if it's in an area where it feels like mental health discussions are more taboo. Or maybe in a family where you're like, I can't even say mental health without people being like, you know, and so it just goes to show advocacy doesn't have to come at a microphone. It doesn't have to be an influencer on Instagram. It can be certainly and it's appreciated. But for some folks, it's going to be I'm walking along feeling the weight of the world and what else is going to happen to me. And I see this rock that is slightly not even slightly. It's teal. It's different than the other rocks. And we're, and I go, oh, wait, what is that? And it catches my eye. People will paint rocks for other things, too. And they'll put them around in different spaces. And it's like, yeah, it catches your eye. And you're like, oh, I'm going to go look at that. And the fact that it has that information on it, it's such a great example of what advocacy can look like. Just having something there going, hey, or using the the pin board, whether you're at a Starbucks or a local coffee shop or whatever, and even putting something up there to strip away if you uh, ever had thoughts like these and you want more information that direct you towards IOCDF or can direct you to other areas. And so I just, I love that. And I think that's so cool. And I love that because I want to inspire people here in the fam that think, yeah. like, I, I'm, I get anxious at the thought of talking <laughs> To people, this is, oh, that's beautiful. That is a great example. I love it. I'm going to guess, do you have those over on your Instagram page? I do, yeah. Okay, so guys, I'm going to, as always, I'm going to put resources, citations (laughs) from this episode on this episode's blog. And I want you guys to check out Erica's Instagram page. Her handle will be there on the blog notes. But also, if you can say, some folks will remember it because you got amazing brains that remember all the things. What's your handle over on Instagram? scruple ocd underscore casey okay so again if you're like yes i will need that in writing (laughs) we'll have that over on the blog but also i i love that and she just showed me one of the rocks since y'all can't see it and you're probably driving so you shouldn't necessarily stop and look at it anyway right now do check out erica's instagram So I'm going to ask you as we wrap up here today, and and first of all, just again, thank you for everything that you've shared and your vulnerability is such a gift. So I really appreciate that. It sounds like there could be so many things here, but when we think about what was the most and what was the least helpful experience in terms of your family, your chosen family, or your biological family, in terms of you being able to understand, let alone manage your OCD, what do you think would be the top thing that you're like, wow, this really helped me? And what was the thing that's like, that's not helpful, so please don't? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would say the most helpful was being allowed to try. When I got out of the hospitalizations and everything, I had a lot of family that just allowed me to try anything and everything creatively. Like, rest in peace to my grandma's side garden. She let me try landscaping. (laughs) It didn't go well, but she let me try it. (laughs) Yeah. So I do appreciate all the people that just allowed me to try different things as I was on my mental health wellness journey and still are to this day. And then also one other thing. Those are my family that allowed me to ask questions about my faith. Yes. Oh, Because now I have a very strong faith in me and Christ. And I don't think I would have had that if it wasn't for people that just allowed me to be vulnerable and ask. 
That gave me chills, Erica. And I think it's it it really cannot be underscored enough that any any part of faith, and again, I'm not a theologian, so yeah, take this for what you will, but any faith requires belief, right? That's why it's not like proof. That's not why it's, you know, use we're using another word there. We're using faith. Faith is part of that is choosing to believe in things unseen and understanding mm-hmm. un, unseen and absolutely wrestling with your faith. Even wrestling with, you know, we we look at things even law and order nowadays and go, we we could wrestle with these issues and don't understand it either. So let alone something where we are having individual journeys, relationships and needing to really lean into faith if we're going to engage in that faith relationship, right? And so if you're not allowed to wrestle, that's not what faith is. Faith is allowed to question. Faith is allowed to wrestle. Faith can sometimes feel very secure and sometimes can feel very, very broken and unknown. And that is all very normal. And within mental health, whether you know something or not from your faith doctrine or your faith journey, there is so much being attacked by OCD where that faith is held hostage by mental health. And so being able to have the freedom in this space to wrestle is so, so important. And so that's such a great point. And, you know, they're all great points. But I, I'm very, very glad that you were able to highlight that because it gives us an opportunity to reiterate that. And I do love that you were able then to have a relationship that is value-driven for you. And I think that a lot of people do lose their sense of faith and their sense of belief and belonging going through trauma, going through these kind of OCD mental health crises. And so the fact that you're able to come out on the other side and go, no, I have a really strong faith relationship that it's mine. It's not OCDs. It's yours. It's so beautiful. And and having the people there to support that it's okay to wrestle with this is such a huge piece of that, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. I wanted to make sure I touched on that because even though I did have a hard time or have horrible experiences with faith in the church while growing up, I do have a very strong faith now. And it's because of those that allowed me to have that space. So And you. Because you also, (laughs) you get some major credit in there too, okay, Erica? I mean, the others too, but, you know, y'all were supporting her being able to be her own person too. And so I love that. I love that you were able to have that. Okay. So we got the easy ones, easy quote unquote, out of the way. I know, the easy ones. (laughs) Yeah, so something that's not helpful. I'd have to say... It's just the pain, the too many cooks in the kitchen, you know, everyone having what they think is right, what they think is wrong, and not allowing people to, like, in my case scenario, I had doctors, but nobody in my family wanted to believe it. Everyone had an opinion that was way off from what (laughs) what the professionals were telling me to do. So I don't know if I'm saying that right. No, I think you're saying it in a great way. Like you, you're trying okay. to listen and lean in. Everyone's contradicting each other. And then it just creates a space that feels more confusing instead of feeling just supported and being like, all right, well, maybe they know a thing or two about this. Or maybe you're getting something out of this. Let's see how this goes. Instead of having that skepticism, which I think skepticism, sometimes people are coming at it from a good intention angle. But if it's just pooping on the parade here, 
I mean, that is not helpful when you're trying, when you're like, I am hanging on survival. I hear this and immediately it's shot down. Like, that's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think you said it. I got it because you got me there. That's really good. Even if you don't agree with it, maybe keep your opinions to yourself. And if the person asks for your opinion, please feel free. But don't act like you went to medical school and did all these things and suddenly are just going to poo-poo everything people are saying to try and bring some hope. Yes. So let hope flow. Let hope be there and... Have an open mind. Have an open mind. Let's try it. Let's try it. Let's try it. And if you, Erica, then go like, but what do you really think? Then tell, you know, because they've asked you, what do you really think? But if they're like, this is what I heard from the doctor, and you're just like, mm-mm, that sounds wrong. That's not helpful. Keep that to yourself. Keep yeah. it to yourself. Put it in your journal. That's okay. Right. We don't need the peanut gallery weighing in on all of this. Once it's your issue, if you're dealing with this problem, feel free to weigh in all you want. Right. <laughs> but I can't have you living rent-free in my head right now. Sometimes you just have so much going on in your mind. OCD or not, but like for me, I had so much going on. And then when people add in other things, and with OCD, you're indecisive as it is anyway, then you get even more frozen. You're like, oh, okay, well, shoot, I don't even know. Yeah. Now I really don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally get it. One last question yes. for you. Yes. This has been fantastic. So I am a big fan of inference-based CBT, otherwise known as ICBT. I'm also a big fan of exposure and response prevention. And uh-huh. I talked a little bit about it. I was very talkative. Yes, but on, on your live stream. But I was wondering, have you heard very much about it? And is it something that you think you might ever be interested in learning more about in terms of if it could complement how far ERP has been able to bring you? I mean, I'm up for anything. I read up some stuff about it, and I've seen some different things about it. And I feel like I may have done something similar to it back in the day in one of the groups I was in, but it wasn't called ICBT. So I don't know. It it looks... Like the triangle thing and stuff like that. I remember seeing a try, like doing the triangle stuff. CBT loves a triangle, y'all. Cognitive behavioral <laughs> therapy for fam that's like, what is this? We got all the letters going. Yes. So I would not be surprised if there were some triangles in your IOP or even with your doctor or hospitalization, any of it. Yes, we love a good triangle. And all of you going like, what? What's the triangle about? So many things. There are so many triangles. I'm interested. My biggest thing is that I know I need to work on my trauma. Does ICBT help with that? So trauma or ERP or ICBT, let me tell you, we have a very strong stance that we treat those two separately. But because the two can overlap, it helps to have somebody that is trained in both trauma and in either ERP or ICBT. Because we don't want to ERP trauma that's going to be re-traumatizing. Like, let me expose myself to the trauma and just sit with it. But like, hi, that's called my life thus far. I think I'm good, right? You know, and so that shouldn't be ERP'd. It really shouldn't be ICBT'd either. But what I will say is some of the trauma triggers the story, some of the way it generalizes and pervades in life, because it can be very narrative in how we kind of remember it. And that narrative, again, because it's important to us in a hard, painful way, but important to us. OCD can entangle with that. And so a good ERP or ICBT slash trauma therapist 
would know how to separate that out and be like, when we are running into trauma, we're going to hard stop and go right in there and support you in what you need. And then when we find that this is in a different space, then we can shift back towards ICBT and be like, now, don't you think, OCD, you're going to go grab that fresh little wrapped up (laughs) little babe over there and just (laughs) wreak havoc with it, right? And so any any practitioner, an ERP practitioner, I would be like, y'all hush when it comes to trauma. You stop, you do the trauma, whether it's prolonged exposure or EMDR or anything like that. That stuff. And then vice versa, we don't use the trauma methods on OCD business because then that doesn't help. OCD will want to latch <laughs> onto it in its own way if we're just like, we're just going to sit and we're like, we're doing anything with it because I'm, I'm like starting to spiral. I'm in the, in the hamster wheel now about it. And so a good therapist in either ERP or ICBT would be able to go, okay, stop. And ideally, you could have that person in the same therapist so that you're not like needing to go to every appointment, everywhere, whatever. All righty. Well, I will say thank you so much for coming in today, Erica. This has been a real gift for us to be able to hear your story. And most of all, just to be able to find those blades of grass, like you said, and realizing that whether if you're between a rock and a hard place, literally a teal rock that says there's hope out there, then yes, recognizing that there's hope is probably, if anything, it's everything for anybody listening here and for you as well. So thank you so much for just sharing with us and taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. All right, fam. Okay. Again, I, I probably sound like a broken record, but is Erica not amazing? Come on now. Like, seriously. Move over, Cena, because we've got Erica, Warrior Princess, and she's fierce and amazing. And what a gift it has been to hear and share her story together. So thanks again to you, Erica, for all of the little and big ways you've been advocating and spreading hope. Being vulnerable and courageous enough to share your story with the fam here is going to have ripple effects that you may never even know the depths of, but they will be providing those blades of grass, those tangible pieces of survival to others. And so thank you. It's not nearly a big enough phrase to express our gratitude. So for today's intrusive thought segment, which is my application segment of the show, I love the tips that Erica was able to share with us. Because I think there's really, really practical application that we can draw out of it. So her top two included family, allowing her the space to try different things that could help promote her recovery. That creativity, that artistic expression, gardening, (laughs) and the permission to be able to wrestle with her faith and relationships that OCD was targeting. I loved that. And seriously, even in preparing this episode for publication for y'all, I got chills again. Because it was such a profound thing when we can preserve or experience a value-driven relationship, like a faith relationship, not despite, get this, but in reflection of our struggles. I mean, often the amount of torture and themes this woman experienced surrounding her, her son, the number of negatively reinforcing experiences she had within her childhood, within her environment, reinforcing this fear or even leaving receipts about the judgment to come. I mean, it breaks my heart. But in reflection of going through all of that, and she did, fam, she went through all of it, all of it. 
she came out on the other side with an ability to have her own value-driven, healthy wrestling with her experience, with her faith, with her support community, with her relationships. And she was able to come out of that with a deeper, more fulfilling relationship than I bet she ever thought was going to be possible, especially when it comes to faith. Not despite her struggle, but in reflection of her journey. And while I, and I'm sure so many of you, would never wish the road upon her that she has had to travel, what a beautiful, sacred blade of grass she's found. She's nurtured. She's grown. Lastly, she shared something that was a little less helpful from fam. <laughs> we know, we know, no one's perfect. I know I'm not perfect. I got, I've got ways I can improve. And while likely driven out of good intentions, and I think this is often the case, family is trying to wrap around their loved ones. And I think it, it comes from this place of really wanting to protect or save or help. But despite her community's ability to allow space and room for her to explore her healing through those different outlets, she did find hope to dwindle when folks rejected doctors' recommendations or treatment strategies. And hear me, fam, I'm not saying that you can't have doubts or lack of clarity or understanding about why and how a treatment can look this way or that and is being recommended. Sometimes we should be alarmed, especially if there is a treatment being prescribed that has no business treating OCD. We want to see evidence-based treatments that have a record for doing what they say they can do. Because fam like Erica and your lived experience warriors, we've already suffered too much from this debilitating disorder. But I'll be the first to say, y'all, even, even within evidence-based practices, the first time I ever read about ERP, and that's, again, exposure and response prevention, I was like, excuse me, what? Uh, well, I trusted, I mean, trust that it worked. I was like, yeah, I, I don't do that, and I can't do that. And, you know, I wasn't totally wrong. I didn't do it. And it did sound hard and triggering and painful. And I mean, check, please. I had been a therapist for two decades and it didn't make sense to me. But I did believe that it could work. I just knew that I didn't know how to make it work. I trusted the data. I trusted the success stories, the movement, the advocacy constantly being carried by the International OCD Foundation and researchers and colleagues and warriors. And likewise, when I first heard about ICBT, that's inference-based CBT, the new evidence-based treatment on the block that wasn't exactly a spring chicken, but just has been spending more time traveling abroad. I was already, like, curious, but worried, but questioning, but open. And it took some time for me to really sit down and learn it, to hear it, to follow it, especially after coming from an ERP learning perspective. But I took the time and I started to understand and really appreciate understanding how this mechanism of inferential confusion was driving OCD. So I had my questions, I had my skepticism, but I had to learn it. And I had to learn about it with medication support. I mean, same story, I had to learn it. And I get how hard that can be. And when our loved ones are hurting so much, we don't feel like we have time to sit and learn the brevity of something big and new. We just want relief. We just want hope for our loved ones. And so I know before when I was chatting with Erica, I said, hey, peanut gallery, once it's hitting you, you know, feel free to chime in. But until then, chill, chill, calm yourself. I totally get it, fam. There's probably a big piece of us going, but it does affect us. It affects our relationships. OCD affects all of us. 
it affects our functioning too. And I get that. So I'm not saying that you don't have feelings and for good reason. Have your feelings, fam. This is not me poo-pooing on that at all. Have your feelings. OCD isn't fair. It's not fair to the sufferer. It is not fair to you. It is not fair to me. It is not fair to any of us. But even if it sounds hard, and even if the therapist or the doctor's recommendation sounds legit bonkers, because that was me with ERP in the very beginning, until I learned it. If it's not causing direct harm, which is like a whole nother can of worms and a different topic for a different day, if causing harm because, you know, yeah, eat that shit. But if it isn't causing harm, then maybe we just try to open ourselves to learn more about it. We can note our own concerns, but we don't have to hash it out with the warrior in our life that is so desperate for this help. Try to understand it for yourself first. Talk to the doctor or the therapist even. And if your loved one invites you in to say, but for real, like what do we think about this? Okay, then dish. But try to hold and reserve that skepticism until you have more information. Because as Erica indicated, it can feel pretty defeating to have a glimmer of hope shut down before it's even given an honest shot. So with keeping those things in mind, fam, let's see what we can do this week to allow some room for creativity and permission to struggle. It's hard to see our loved ones struggle, but when we give that permission, it also gives us permission to be able to hold that as well. We're better together, and there is no we without all of you loving your warriors fiercely. So thank you, fam, and thank you, Erica, and I'll look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah says family like Erica and me shooting the shit about OCD. That's right. I went there and you can too at OCD family.